every year at House of Mercy on Good Friday for our Station of the Cross service, we ask 14 visual artists to interpret the stations. In this pandemic year, when we are still unable to meet in person, we've asked 14 writers, each to interpret a Station of the Cross. Station one is Jesus Condemned to Death. That's Bruce Johnson. Station two, Jesus Takes Up His Cross, Carrie Khalil. Station three, Jesus Falls for the First Time Under the Cross, Sarah McRoberts. Station four, Jesus Meets His Afflicted Mother, Amy Munson. Station five, Simon of Cyrene is forced to take up the cross, Jonas Erickson. Station six, Veronica Wipes the Face of Jesus, Phyllis Salon. Station seven, Jesus Falls for the Second Time, Katie Langston. Station eight, Jesus Meets the Women of Jerusalem. Kristen Belke Stennis. Station nine, Jesus Falls for the third time. Miles Blue Larson. Station 10, Jesus is stripped of his clothing. Julie Bach. Station 11, Jesus is nailed to the cross. Don Palmgren. Station 12, Jesus dies on the cross. Neil Bernard. Station 13, Jesus is taken down from the cross, Aaron Morelli. Station 14, Jesus is placed in the tomb, Richard Pemberton. Join us now in making the way of the cross. Station number one, Jesus is condemned to death. Have you discovered then the beginning, that you look for the end? For where the beginning is, there the end will be. Blessed is he who takes his place in the beginning. He will know the end and not experience death. It was towards the beginning that he traveled. This was his destination. The beginning was the place where he was going, the place before materiality and time. He said that he came from the beginning, that he would return to the beginning, that he was the beginning. Resisting is not enough. The direction, the action of movement must be reversed. To create, one must go towards that space that existed before the material world to reverse time, to give one's back to the smiters, and to be hailed with a crown of thorns. Going against the regular flow of everyday transactions and time, to the source, to the beginning. The flow of time is reversed. The days of creation run backwards as the accusations are hurled. The sun's light fails. The formless void reappears. 
the spirit moves over the face of the waters, and his soul is poured out to death. Station number two, Jesus takes up his cross. Jesus's murder was an act of political violence. Not long ago, this would have felt like an abstraction, an idea. But after the events surrounding our most recent election, it feels much more tangible. Jesus's trial and crucifixion took place during the reign of Caesar Augustus. It was the time of Pax Romana. It was considered a time of peace and prosperity for the Roman Empire. But in reality, it was a time of subjugation and poverty for the conquered on whose taxes the wealth of the empire was built. Pontius Pilate was the Rome-appointed governor of Judea who was tasked with keeping an imposed order on the Jewish people. He had had only limited success and his position was in jeopardy. The Sadducees, the Jewish high priests, had aligned themselves with Rome and prospered through their political connections and temple taxes. The Pharisees held their religious authority and were authoritarians in upholding Jewish law. Jesus was brought before Pilate after being convicted in a secret and illegal trial conducted by the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus' teaching and the people's love for him was beginning to undermine their authority and threaten their positions of power. They lied to Pilate about Jesus' motivations and used Pilate's fear of losing his position as governor to manipulate him into sentencing an innocent man to death. Crowds of people who were in the city for Passover during Jesus' trial were incited by their leaders' lies to mob violence. And while it appears that the high priests and Pharisees laid a successful trap for Jesus, this was part of the fulfillment of his plan. Jesus knew he must die. He also knows that the most dangerous men are ones whose power and wealth are threatened, and that the most violent mobs are the ones whipped up with fear, lies, and manipulation. But Jesus did not meet our violence with violence or retribution. In direct opposition to empire and religious authoritarianism, and in the ultimate act of forgiveness and mercy, Jesus bent low, took up his cross, and went to the place of the skull. Station 3, Jesus Falls for the First Time Blessed is the Lord of Falling. When we honor our perfect Jesus, we celebrate how walking the path that God laid out does not mean never slipping. We see that even the most divine, central story of our faith holds humility. We see that holiness is not being in control. We adore you, O Christ, a Savior who stumbles. Station number four, Jesus meets his mother. All summer we walk and my boy carries everything back to me. Tart bundles of cedar, curls of birch like chalked over roses. He pinches and shears tassels of hyssop, its smallest achievable incarnations of blue 
radiating around him. He is most mine, I think, though no one here owns what they hold. Even kneeling among agates, all the pressure centuries use to recall our soft and vanishing bodies, even draped in vinegar, doused in blood. I cannot look at or away from him, cannot believe I have ever borne anything. Sumac and locust pods, wormwood, milkweed, my skirt latches and drags, hand it all over, I'm screaming after him as he hurries ahead of me, grabbing at trees. Station 5. Simon of Cyrene is forced to take up the cross. A few hundred years earlier, a Greek pharaoh had conquered Judea and forced much of the native population to resettle in Cyrene, a Greek settlement in North Africa, which by the time of Simon was now controlled by the Roman Empire and home to about 100,000 Jews. Simon was one of them, a native of Africa in a Greek city under Roman occupation. He had probably traveled for over a month to celebrate Passover at the Cyrenian synagogue in Jerusalem. Here he was, not a local, but not quite an alien, a man who likely felt in his heart that this was home, even if the circumstances of birth and brutal empire forced him to live elsewhere. He had just arrived in town, had probably never heard of Jesus before, and now was compelled to carry his cross? It was maybe the last thing he expected to happen on this pilgrimage. Or maybe, as a fellow subject of empire, he was used to having his will and body co-opted by the oppressor. He was not asked. He was a passerby, seized by occupying soldiers, and forced to participate in the state execution of a local hero. If he had been asked, if he had been given a choice, he might have felt conflicted, both wanting to relieve the burden of Jesus in his final exhausted and painful moments of life, and also not wanting to move one muscle to assist the Romans with their domination and cruelty. The name Simon means to hearken. So, what was it Simon heard? The sounds of Jesus' exhaustion. The wheezing, grunting, panting, sobbing. Also, the murmurs, shouts, laughter, and weeping of the throng. Also, the sounds of the Roman soldiers. Their commands, their footsteps, the jingling of their armor. Plates of iron wrapped in steel sliding over plates of iron wrapped in steel. Also, the scraping sound of the long end of the wooden cross dragged over the street's stone slabs. Also, the ominous words sapped of hope that a nearly naked Jesus spoke to the women wailing in the crowd. And what did Jesus hear Simon say? Did he hear enough to know that Simon was from Cyrene? 
Did he notice that his own life was bookended by Africa? Having fled there himself as an infant refugee, and now a descendant of refugees in Africa, had returned from exile and helped him? Station number six, Veronica wipes the face of Jesus. Compassion is something that people have been practicing and developing, valuing, learning about, researching, and teaching for a very, very, very long time. In fact, I have a 525-page book published in 2017 called The Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science. There are variations of teachings about compassion from all over the world in legends and stories across cultures and religions. Pema Chodron, a Tibetan Buddhist abbess of a Nova Scotian monastery, describes it this way. Compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It is a relationship between equals. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. We don't set out to save the world. We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect other people's hearts. Compassion is wired into us as human beings and perhaps even as mammals. Over the first five years of life, children develop a sense of themselves as separate from, yet connected to, the people around them. Very young children attune to what others are feeling and also have a deep impulse to soothe the suffering of others. If you've ever been in a preschool or toddler room, or if you've ever had little ones of your own, you can just picture a toddler crying with another toddler standing nearby, holding her own little blanket and sucking her thumb, because that's what helps when she's distressed. She wants her little friend not to be in pain and is doing her best to be with and soothe. As we develop, we start to know that other people are different from us. At first, even infants feel the arousal that those around them are feeling. Over time, as children are more and more able to understand that people have different thoughts, needs, and desires, they begin to recognize why a person might be feeling the way they are. We start to understand that they may need something to soothe and comfort their suffering that's different from what we need. By about five years old, children regularly practice compassionate action towards other children and towards adults. My sister is a kindergarten teacher, and they have a peace corner in their classroom. When someone is having a hard time, any student can offer to sit in the peace corner with the student that's having a hard time. And they regularly help each other out in this way and in others. When given the opportunity in the nurturing environment to continue to make choices for compassionate action, children develop in these ways. Compassion is the understanding and experience of the suffering of another and a deep desire to alleviate that suffering. An act of compassion is an act of acknowledgement. I believe that when we step away from our limited selves into the parts of us that exist in the continuum 
of all of who we are, connected to each other and all of who they are, and to the world itself, in our suffering and in our joy, we change the world. According to Sharon Salzberg, a contemporary Buddhist teacher, that is what compassion does. It challenges our assumptions, our sense of self-limitation, of worthlessness, of not having a place in the world. As we develop compassion, our hearts open. The more that we have a sense that the world is a place where people work and thrive and survive together, the more likely we are to lean towards compassion. Conversely, the more we understand people, the world, and probably God too, as separate, self-consumed, and scary, the more we lean into fear, isolation, and punishment rather than compassion. In other words, stuff gets in the way of compassionate action. The bad things that happen to us when we don't have any help, our own dysregulation, our own fear. I imagine that Veronica had many different considerations running through her mind and emotions as Jesus approached the place that she had been standing with the other women of Jerusalem. This is horrible. Why is this happening? People are so angry and it doesn't make any sense. Can't they see that they're being controlled and manipulated? This crowd is unpredictable and raging. They don't even know that they're raging at the wrong person. Most of the people here don't even want to know the truth. They have an enemy to momentarily distract them from their own pain. A pain that is actually instigated by the very same people who are orchestrating this killing. Why are people so willing to be fooled, to be controlled? Oh, he is so battered and broken. He has consistently taught peace and understanding and compassion. What can I do in the face of so much rage, though? I can't change this crowd. I can't change the religious leaders who are pawns of the Roman Empire. I'm just one person. I am not enough. If I say anything in this crowd, they will turn on me. I'm not even sure of the women I traveled here with. I need to remember who I am. What my mother and my grandmothers have taught me. The true core teachings of my people are clear. In Zechariah, God says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. And so she stepped out with dignity and courage from the center of her values and integrity. She chose this in the face of social strictures and fear of religious reprisals or imminent aggression. Veronica's action, wiping the face of Jesus, was an act of saying, I see you. I see who you really are at your core, and I love you because you are. And in response, she is seen by him for all of who she is in that exact moment. Her action echoes down the millennia. I'm grateful for my spiritual ancestors who remind me 
with their deeds of who I am and what is important to me. I choose compassionate action not because it's easy. In fact, it can be extremely difficult, especially when there's danger or when those who are suffering are the cause of most of the suffering of others. I choose compassionate action because it is right. Because it brings one more drop of seeing and being seen into the world. I believe that each act of compassion changes the world because each act of compassion changes the ones involved. There is no act of compassion too small or insignificant. Rumi, the 13th century Sufi mystic and poet, says it perfectly. You are not just the drop in the ocean. You are the mighty ocean in the drop. It's heavy. It's so heavy. It's heavier than I thought it would be. Get up. Get up. Why can't you bring yourself to your feet? What's wrong with you that you can't get out of bed? This isn't even real. It's all in your head, you idiot. You lazy butt. Get up. Hey. Yeah. Hi. Hey. I'm... I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to cancel. No, no, I'm I'm totally fine. I just have, you know, kind of a kind of a headache, you know, just kind of came on suddenly. So, yeah, I'll I'll talk to you later, okay? No, no. Seriously, everything's everything's good. I'll just Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, see you soon. Bye. What a stupid, awful piece of garbage. No wonder you don't have any friends. Who would want to be friends with someone who can't even function like a normal human being? Get up! Please! You stupid, selfish, worthless freak! It's heavy. It's so heavy. It's heavier than I thought it would be. Station 8, Jesus Meets the Women of Jerusalem. Why was this moment in the crucifixion preserved? And what are we to learn from it? You will likely be unsurprised to hear that there are multiple interpretations of this verse, multiple possible lessons we can be taught. For example, that we are grieving the wrong thing, that these women should be focused on their own sin and reckoning 
rather than crying for the suffering of Jesus. A message of you will suffer too in your life and then eternally if you do not make yourself right with God my Father. And perhaps that is one lesson. I took from it an example to follow. An example of Jesus acknowledging the pain of others even in the midst of his own deep suffering. Reaching beyond our own suffering is certainly challenging for us as humans. For many of us, this past year exploded with opportunities for us to not allow our own never-ending frustration, loneliness, heartbreak, guilt, and fear of guilt make us blind to what others in our world are experiencing. As humans, we will feel fear in the presence of suffering, and all the more so when we don't feel strong ourselves. But here Jesus is showing us how we can step into that fear and how a spiritual connection can give us the courage to form a human connection. Station number nine, Jesus falls for the third time. The third time? What more is there to say here that hasn't been said? The first time he falls, it's horrible. You don't know if he'll get up. This might be the end. When Jesus manages to get to his feet again, it's incredible, inspiring. The second time, you still worry. You've seen him do this before. He can do it again. When he gets back up, it's still incredible, but maybe just a little less so. The third time... It's like, come on, hurry up already. Let's get this show on the road. Old news, I get it. He's going to fall and get back up. Let's get to the conclusion here. Let's see him die or escape in a blaze of God powers or something. It's like, I already worried about you. I already expressed all this concern the first time you fell. I put in some time and effort, felt some emotional pain watching you, wondering if you would manage to stand... I even did it again the second time. I felt wretched. I felt scared. But the third time? And yet, how many times do we see someone fall and still care? How many times does the addict relapse? How many times does the abused return to their abuser? How many times do we make the decision that hurts ourselves again and again? How many times do we fall and get back up? I was trying really hard to write a conclusion here, but it turns out it's a really complicated question. It's like, how patient are you? How many times does someone screw up and you forgive them? Does it help them to forgive them endlessly, or does it just enable their self-destruction? How many times can we forgive ourselves? Do I have to punish myself to unlearn the self-destructive tendencies? Jesus falls three times and gets back up. He does this knowing in the end he's getting nailed to a cross anyways. Do we just keep getting back up even if we always wind up nailed to a cross in the end?
Station number 10. Jesus is stripped of his clothes. Cut off a fresh branch, a good-sized branch, from a silver maple down by the river. Hold it in your hand. Feel the weight of it, the length of it. With a pocket knife, cut into the bark. Then pull the bark away in long, narrow strips, exposing the vulnerable sapwood beneath. The branch no longer looks like a branch. It has become a material for making furniture or utensils or picture frames. It is on its way to being used. Station 11. Jesus is nailed to the cross. First the hands. Jesus' body wants to fall. I hold him up to stay the gravity and place his hand palm out, flat against the wood. I push the nail in and pound straight through the flesh, driving through tendons and hitting a bone as the hammer jerks back. I strike again, harder, through a vein, and I am into the wood as blood runs down my arm and onto my white shirt, turning it liquid crimson. He screams as a naked shock goes through his frail body. He shakes and vibrates. His scream frightens the horses, rustles leaves of birch trees, stirs up dust as a dark pain spreads over the hills. Before I can hold him up again, before the scream, absence spreads within me as I reach for the hammer and the other nail. Station number 12. Jesus dies on the cross. As the life ebbed out of him, Jesus looked down from the cross and said to Mary, Woman, here is your son. Jesus took his last breath in the loving, compassionate presence of his mother. While we contemplate Jesus' suffering and death, let us also contemplate the thousands who died during the pandemic, especially those who died alone, with no reassuring hand to hold and no loved ones to ease their transition. We pray that peace came upon them in their final moments. We pray that someone will be there for us when we die. Station number 13. Jesus is taken down from the cross. Well, it happened. The drama is over. Jesus died. For all of you who are expecting a different ending, I'm sorry. God didn't save him in a cloud of angels and glory like so many of you were hoping for. Do you think his mother, Mary, was among those expecting something miraculous? Or do you think the angel explained it to her all those years ago? This was how it was going to end. If you've studied art history, 
You may be familiar with Michelangelo's Pietà. Mary, as Jesus' mother, holding his lifeless adult body across her lap as if he were a young child. She appears huge, as if her faith has given her some superpower to absorb all the grief. Her face is serene and calm as it is sculpted in cool marble. This calmness is a farce. I imagine time moved in slow motion for Jesus' mother, with a hot ringing of blood in her ears disorienting her. She was hard-pressed in the moment to understand all that was happening. Dead? How is my child dead? She may have asked in fear and disbelief. As someone made the order to remove the body, and another acted upon it, I can picture Mary at a loss of what to do next. And then there was the friend whose actions felt like a cool washcloth on Mary's hot temple, as cool as that white marble statue. Joseph of Arimathea appears ready with permission to take Jesus's body, clean linen, and a place to prepare for burial. This act of extreme care amounted to safety, comfort, and protection for Mary and the other women. Out of the public view, her calm exterior crumbles. God, you have got some explaining to do. Station 14, they lay him in the tomb. They call me Mary Magdalene to distinguish me from the others named Mary. But to him, I was just Mary, his Mary, his first and truest disciple. Though they will not report it that way if it's ever all written down. And they will not report either that there was one disciple a mere woman who stood with him till the bitter, bitter end. I prayed with him in the garden and did not fall to sleep. When the soldiers seized him, I did not run away. When they took him before the high priest, I did not deny him. I told the people exactly who I was. They threw stones at me. Well, Peter cast his eyes on the ground. I was there at the foot of the cross with his mother while well, they tortured him to death. And when he could no longer raise his head and was about to suffocate, I alone heard him say, I can't breathe. And now here I am as they lay him in the tomb his body is bruised and broken. His face is twisted in agony and horror. Unlike his male disciples, who expected the coming of the second King David and denied a day like this, 
of ignominy and shame and cruel death would ever come. I never doubted for a moment that he would have to die. But as I wrap his body in borrowed burial clothes, my anger is almost as great as my grief. And my grief is beyond all telling. My dear Jesus, forsaken by his male disciples, by his followers, by various hangers-on, by the rich, by the opportunistic, forsaken by all of them, but nothing as cruel as that he was forsaken by his God, his Father, and delivered over to his enemies unto a hideous death. His mother never abandoned him, nor did I. No woman who knew him in her heart could have torn out the roots of his young life. No, he was not a king, and I will not remember him as a prophet either, but as a teacher and a friend, a beautiful flesh and blood man with a love on every wind.